I watched The Saint, the movie. Okay. Mm. Leslie Charteris doesn't get a name check, does he? Not that I saw. And not <laughs> only did I watch it once, I spun through it again with the director's commentary by Philip Noyce. Oh, right. Okay. Who I think did his best work in the late 70s and early 80s while he was in Australia. News, the Australian film Newsfront is excellent. It is, it is. And so I tended to look out for Philip Noyce films, but not since the early 80s. And <laughs> Which is fine. I mean, he's obviously done sterling work. Have you heard the director's commentary? No, I haven't. No, no. Yes, we'll return to this. But first I'll say hello and welcome to Rose Tinted Black and White Television. The showcase show uh, at Dave's request because Dave has been seeking out alternative versions uh, of the Saint to Roger Moore's black and white series, which is currently unspooling on Talking Pictures Television. And uh, Dave, you sent me a link to the Vincent Price versions. Yes, we were talking the other week about whether you know, popular series of the times or serials had had like Christmas Christmas specials. And when Mr. Vincent Price was doing um, the Saint on the wireless, they did one called Saint is No Saint, in which at the beginning we understand that uh, the Saint, Simon Temple, is dressing up as Santa to do some good works around the city of New York leading up to Christmas time, but obviously gets all kind of tied up in some crying thing i wasn't quite sure why this woman burst into his flat or apartment because it's in new mm. york thinking that he was somebody called fats what's his name i don't know why she thought it was the right address and they hid her in the bathroom and then this other guy bursts in and waves another revolver around and accuses the saint <laughs> of being fat, what's his name? And yeah, I don't think we adequately cleared that up. No, it's it just like I said. I thought it tied in neatly with our examination of of Christmas specials, and uh, and, and I just thought to another interest. It's Vincent Price, who who we may not necessarily think of as the the heroic individual crime-busting individual, the Robin Hood of crime, but it's interesting and he acquits himself quite well. I think he does. Initially, when you first hear him, there is a certain campness to Vincent Price, which you wouldn't necessarily have associated with Simon Templer. Come in. Hi, Mr. Templer. Oh, hello, Louie. Where are you? I'm in my room. I'll be ready oh. in a minute. But once you get past that kind of first sentence and there's a lot of banter with his uh, taxi driver sidekick, who is mm. kind of like the Warren Mitchell character that Simon meets in Rome. He does, you know, he features in the books, he features, uh, you know, he's not a permanent fixture, but he does, he does feature quite heavily and when the films in like the 30s and 40s were done Lewis Haywood and, and George Sanders and um, Hugh Sinclair amongst others then there invariably because it would be set in New York there would be a, a handy cabbie um, a friendly Travis Bickle to to <laughs> help him. Yes, you always need one of those to burst in with a revolver at the right time and rescue the damsel for want of a better word, in distress. Yeah, I really quite liked it. I mean, the, the, the link that you sent me, it's it's on YouTube. 
there's something like a dozen episodes. Um, mm-hmm. They're all kind of separated with timestamps, and you kind of know it's finished because there's these weird appeals to send food parcels to Europe and also to go to church, which is quite puzzling. I'm not quite sure why those were there. They didn't doesn't seem to be a lot of money to be made out of it. But the network these were going out on at the time was called Mutual. And whether there was any kind of religious aspect to it, I don't know. I'm sure listeners will be able to tell us. A lot, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, popular characters would, you know, from either books or, or otherwise, would feature quite heavily on, on, on the radio. The Shadow was, was very, very popular. Um, and for a while, quite often, one of, one, of, one of the strange things that radio would do is they would do shortened versions of of current feature films, usually featuring the same stars. Yes, which is quite interesting when uh, when you hear them. Um, to hear, I don't think they were as short as half an hour, but they certainly zipped along. And one of the things about Vincent Price's version of The Saint is that it's really fast-moving and witty. Oh, God, yeah, it doesn't hang around. We were talking the, the other week about how sometimes the Christmas special could be like a little bit of fun, a little bit more light-hearted. It, it still gets down to the crime aspect and zips along at a, a breathless pace. Yeah, and there's usually a rather complicated explanatory denouement at the end where the villain is unmasked. Not only in that one where the saint kind of does what Perry Mason later did in television, where he just breaks down their alibi and their, their whole story. Dorothy, didn't there used to be a phone in this room? I don't know. I don't remember. Oh, yes, yes, your amnesia. But you remember everything that happened since the blow on your head, don't you? Well, of course. But then equally, of course, since you were in this room a very little while ago, and since you used a phone in here, you should have remembered that. Why didn't you? Well, I don't know. Slipped my mind. No, Dorothy, it didn't slip your mind. You were merely being over-careful. What does that mean? It means that you are not now nor ever were suffering from amnesia. Why should I pretend to have amnesia? Because you killed your uncle. You knew you'd need something to help you out in court, so you wandered about until you found someone on whom you could try out your amnesia. That happened to be me. You're just saying those things without proof. Besides, there was a paraffin test. It indicates merely that you wore gloves when you shot your uncle. It indicates I might have worn them. If I'd shot him, you can't prove I did. I can prove your amnesia was phony, that along with some other things. How can you prove it? Very simple. Your hat. What? When you arrived at my apartment, you took your hat off, discovered a large bruise on the back of your head. That was to supply a plausible reason for your amnesia. But, Dorothy, as I remarked to the cab driver at the time... Your hat was immaculate, untouched. <laughs> You're asking us to believe that the killer knocked you out and then carefully put your hat back on your head again? Yes, I really liked it. And compared to some BBC shows, to my mind, even still today, if you listen to BBC radio plays, there isn't enough zip in them. And that's something that you and I, in our work, have, <laughs> have tried Absolute to reach out. Plenty of zip. Vincent Price's Saint went out on a variety of networks, CBS, Mutual, and then NBC. And it's quite a complicated thing because because they were networks, they were networks of local stations, and they dropped in and out of the network. 
Um, and obviously that affected the advertising and Mutual in itself as a purported network didn't really give up until the late 90s. I think it's USP was owning baseball rights. <coughs> and then it also had to produce other stuff. By the time you get into the 50s, you've got television taking away the audience. There's a decline in original dramas. And by the time you get into the 70s, they're starting doing talk radio, which mm. is obviously a much bigger thing in the States uh, than it is in the UK, despite all those people who have platforms, let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yes, I really rather enjoyed Vincent Price uh, as the Saint, and I'll probably tune into some more. Let's come to the movie. Okay. Which, <clears throat> as I said in the pre-ramble, I've watched not only once, but twice. Yes. A finger hovering on the fast-forward button, it has to be said, particularly because the second time was with the director's commentary, uh, Philip Noyce. And director's commentaries are quite interesting because you get the sense that he spent three years of his life on this project. Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's not just the, you know, barely under two hours that you see on the screen. Uh, there's there's all the other bits and pieces to go around it. And I, I, I suppose one of the touchier subjects is once it is made, once it is, you know, done and dusted, you've then got the the process of promoting it uh, and, and how awkward it would be to promote something that you realise oh, it hasn't really turned out as I as I wanted or as I envisioned. Yes. Um, the very start of the director's commentary, Philip Noyce is saying that actually... In an outback town in, I think it was New South Wales, where they used to have the Saturday morning matinees at the cinema and all the kids would meet up and they'd have comic books and they'd have uh, adventure stories and things and they would swap them. And he discovered the saint through that. And he said he quite liked the idea of the anti-hero, the Robin Hood character, partly because it feeds into the Australian mythos of they were all people sent there originally uh, because they'd been up to no good in uh, the UK. So that's quite interesting. Then there appears to be a rather, as with any film, the difficult process of just getting to the first day of principal photography. <laughs> yes. And in this case, my impression is, I may have got this wrong, but my impression is they had the idea of the saint and they also had an idea of who they might uh, like to appear in it. And Hugh Grant passed and several other people for went the opportunity. And then he went to see Val Kilmer, who was filming The Island of Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando. It wasn't a happy experience for anybody. Yes, and John Frankenheimer, I think, was the director who... Did he replace the previous director? Um, well, there's all that mythos about Richard Stanley, who was the original director, being um, having himself made up to look like a beast man so he could actually act on set whilst John Frankenheimer was working on it. Urban myth? I don't know. Yes. The idea of Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando not getting on is surprising because they're both very keen on Native American rights uh, mm. so i would have thought they were a natural fit but also possibly quite similar characters 
my impression of Val Kilmer before I read his Wikipedia page and read the thing about reputation was that he's quite a determined actor with lots of ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And apparently when Philip Noyce met him and then met him again in South Africa, he discovered that Val Kilmer had really gone for the disguise element and had hired his own makeup artist for which he was going to pay should the film not get made and had about seven disguises that he really liked. There was he also, does, he goes full memory, doesn't he? he? He really does. And then he also had a dialogue coach who came up with different accents. And I think he would have liked to have more disguises, though Paramount, I think are in charge of the Mission Impossible franchise. The Mission Impossible, first Mission Impossible was the year before. And there was a line. Yes, yes yeah. There's a line somewhere which implies that they wanted to keep the disguise thing for Mission Impossible rather than the saint. Anyway, there was a series of wigs and makeup and a series of accents. And then they had to match them up. Now, I am not aware that there was a script in place at this point. Just ideas. Just wonderful ideas and themes. Yes. <clears throat> Freestyling improvisation, which then gets brought to life by a scriptwriter. And apparently there were also improvisations on set, including one with, I think it's another dialogue coach, who Philip Noyce asked to sit at a particular table in, I think it's an airport cafe or a railway station cafe, so that Val Kilmer could spontaneously head off and go and talk to her. Now, looking at the shots, I would say, and having been on film sets, spontaneity is not one of the things that you can do easily unless you've got a handheld or steady mm -hmm. cam camera. And so the fact that he asked her to sit there implies some foreknowledge of the spontaneity, I would say. Um, anyway, it works well enough. He's playing a German at this point. Um, he also plays uh, a toothy, bald American. He plays... An plays an Australian. An Australian <clears throat> who looks uh, a bit like Kevin Klein, actually, from A Fish Called Wonder. He is... Plays a Russian. He plays a Russian um, several times, actually, because he... The one that really works is the uh, one that where he looks like the main villain. Oh, right, yes, he says there's a, there's a look-alike, there's an imposter in there. That was quite convincing, and I think he probably could have used that uh, a bit more. The whole plot seems to evolve. I'm not entirely sure what the MacGuffin is. There's Cold Fusion, mm -hmm. which apparently is meant to be a complete fiction, except that this rather earnest, dowdy-looking young American scientist played by Elizabeth Chew, who wears socks most of the time, <laughs> is, has apparently discovered the secret of making it work. And this is nuclear fusion at room temperature, which would produce limitless amounts of electricity. I'm not sure why the Russian wants it, unless it's 
to get huge amounts of money. You're going to have to help me out with this plot, Dave, because I didn't it really was, follow it. It was, it was a popular popular item. It was a buzzword of the day because at about the same time, around about the same time, the Keanu Reeves action thriller Chain Reaction came out in which the same kind of technology is touted around. Do you realise there's enough energy in this glass of water here, Guy, to power the entire east coast of America until the villains start mucking around with it? And this is, I think, with with The Saint, the film, it's done on an international scale. You know, the leader of Russia is menaced and threatened. Um, You know, the very economy is hanging in the balance. So it's, it's high stakes. Now, not necessarily the ones that we may be used to from the books or TV series. And I have to say that for an American audience, caring about Russia at the time <laughs> yeah. may have been a bit of a stretch. Um, yeah, you think, oh, Russia, the Russian economy is under threat. Hmm. Meh. Uh, you know, so what? Uh, uh, yeah, because it's still, still viewed as a relatively lawless state um, where there are uh, it's you know we never you we never hear the word I don't think in the script the word oligarch, um, but certainly those those with vested interests and vested power um, appear to be at at the forefront and it's it's that really odd thing of what appears to be wanting is is or, or occurring is almost like a coup a coup d'état so that the 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 villain can take over um, Russia and you just go well. You know, you're kind of welcome to it. Kind yes. of, you know, it'd be like, you know, putting in a big property bid for like an old, an old branch of Woolworths. To go, what, what good is it going to do you? <laughs> it used to be Woolworths. It's not going to do you much good. I mean, it's interesting, but Philip Noyes in the director's commentary says, Jonathan and I met a lot of Russian politicians. We met businessmen. We met a lot of people who are in the so-called Russian Mafia, and we realized that the so-called Mafia of Russia was not like the Mafia of Sicily or the Italian Mafia in America, but the real Mafia, the most powerful and the most dangerous criminal element in Russia at that time, was a business Mafia. And so we devised the character of Ivan Tretiak, former Communist Party boss, who sold himself the very Soviet industry that he'd once been managing as a part of the Communist Party and who had become a billionaire as a result of being in the right place at the right time. You may remember the title Moscow Tomorrow that appeared on screen a couple of minutes ago. Well, the Russia you see in this movie is not a real Russia. Our portrait of Moscow is purely speculative. Since the saint was shot, Elections in Russia have confirmed the path towards stable democracy that the country embarked on in the early 90s. But if certain reactionary forces had managed to exert more influence in Russia, then the events you see in this movie could have become a reality. Thank God they haven't. Yet. He seems to be saying the Russian plot was conceived in a much more innocent and optimistic time. This apparatchik-controlled kleptocracy depicted is merely speculation. Oh, okay, there we go. And I suppose it's we've also got the idea that this was at a time when people could film in Russia. Probably for the price of a bowl of soup, um, <laughs> which is... Beetroot, 
at that. Which is what they used to say about East European orchestras just after the Berlin Wall came down, that they were amazingly cost-effective. Oh, um, right. And in order to earn hard currency, they'd come over and uh, do the business or they'd record. There was a huge number of classical discs were produced quite simply because the economics made it much more feasible. Now, with this, there may have been other major Hollywood movies shot in Moscow, but I'd be hard-pushed to remember many of them. Well, the first big one where where they were able to film in Russia, kind of, you know, well, yeah, do what you want, boys, was Red Heat with Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and James Belushi, because it starts off in Russia, and it's they were able to to film in Russia up until that point you usually had places like finland which doubles for russia in gorky park mm. you would have oh let's think of a cold snowy place that looks a bit russian and we'll have that double up and until russia said well come and film here and bring your dollars with you red and, heat was actually before the wall came down wasn't it it's the kind of in red heat was yeah red heat was about 88 87 89 around about then yeah yeah so, so, so it was a big breakthrough in terms of filmmaking and in terms of film cooperation but once the wall did come down then it was then it was open season yeah i mean 97 i mean they would have been shooting in 96 in red square doing all sorts of things i mean obviously there were permission issues uh, i think one camera crew was it on the ministry of defense building they said was arrested for a short time because the guy on duty hadn't seen the right paperwork um, <clears throat> and there was a lot of um impetus to get the i got the impression that the fact that they could film in moscow was both a blessing and a curse partly because red square looks like a film set anyway um, mm. i mean you wouldn't be surprised to see st basil's cathedral in euro disney but it's huge and they used other places and you sort of think well in roger moore's saint they used about half a dozen country houses within half an hour's driving distance of Elstree. Within, well, within Bedford Van distance of Bedford, really. Interestingly, uh, as well, because it's a very photogenic city, large portions of it are, are also shot in Oxford. Um, and Oxford are, are particularly pernickety in terms, despite it being a very popular location, you know, for, for Inspector Morse. Um, amongst others, yeah, they were they were particularly choosy about where you could put your cameras and where you couldn't. Yes, possibly even more so than Moscow. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that was actually shot back in the studio in the UK, in the hotel that Val Kilmer was checking out of in Moscow. It was, in fact, an old insurance building. So the, the, <clears throat> their production designer had absorbed all this stuff <clears throat> that he'd seen in Moscow and then went round a lot of old insurance buildings and town halls and stuff, which actually mm. do look a bit like faded imperial czarist glory. Usually the be the best choice, usually the premier choice, because it's, I mean, it's awkward to get to because it's slap bang in the centre of London, um, always used to be Senate House. For, for those of you familiar with your architecture, looks like the Los Angeles police headquarters because they've got that very impressive tower. And there was the, whether it's an urban myth again, I don't know, but I understand the Nazis, when they were considering invading the UK, wanted to use Senate House as their headquarters. Oh, right. They liked it. I think it might be the model for Ministry of Truth 
1984. And in fact, I think, I don't know if George Orwell worked there as part of the, whatever they wanted to call it, Ministry of Information, Propaganda, what, uh, whatever it was. But yes, there were plenty of buildings, quite often places like Leeds, Liverpool, have also mm-hmm. a lot of those, uh, and particularly interiors. I mean, if you go into... North- Leeds Town Hall. Loads. Leeds Town Hall is great with those old wooden doors with the kind of like lead panes um, windows. Yeah, it lends itself really well. Yeah. And so why you had to go to Moscow in the first place, apart from doing some <laughs> exteriors, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I'm sure that they did try and make the most of it, including the tunnels, which you don't actually see. And they could have explained a bit better. Philip Noyce explains that the tunnels were um, a legacy of Stalinism and okay. that the uh, NKVD would arrest people at three o'clock in the morning and then take them to the Lubyanka through, through tunnels. All of that sounds exceedingly unpleasant. I think they could have explained that and I think all the tunnels were actually filmed back in the UK. So, oh. And you know that scene where Val Kilmer dives into the river then, oh right, yeah, yes. To to um, retrieve medication dropped by Elizabeth's shoe. That's right. The close-ups of the footpath and the snowy wall and everything, all done in studio in London. Okay. All the reverse shots are in Moscow in the spring, apparently, and they they are well cut together. So it's quite interesting when Philip Noyce explains that and takes you through the filmmaking process, which, after all, is most of filmmaking, basically. It's it's looking one way and then looking another, possibly months apart. So, in terms of the Saint's character, I mean, you said that this is an origin story. There is, yeah, there is that bit of, of origin where we have a flashback to see him um in a a very cruel um religious orphanage which is is headed up by um a very very nasty priest who's actually played by the same actor who played pat mustard the uh sinister milkman in father ted uh in the speed three episode and it alluded to that all of the people there, because they are orphans, are given names, are, are assigned names, not their real family names. And, and we hear that that maybe um, he is his real name. I think he's John Rickey. Rossi. Rossi, that's it. Um, but he's always wanted the nickname um, Simon Templar because of Simon Magus, the magician, and um, about how noble the, the Knights Templar are. Well, certainly to this young impressionable child um there's an incident where he he tries to to escape um which unfortunately involves the death of a young girl um that he appears uh, um, very strongly connected to Um, and then that's about it we don't there's a big gap then between what happened after that and how he became the saint and they they just morph onto val kilmer's face don't they yes yeah and Val Kilmer is somebody who is obviously listening to his own recordings, reminding himself, walking through a heist, 
which he is planning. Uh, and a lot of what he does, he's not a particularly nice character, is he? Oh, there's no, there's no warmth to him. There's, there's not much sympathy. His only driven target is to, to 50 million in savings. So presumably you can give up this life of crime, but there's there's not that aspect either from the books or particularly from the TV series that he may be doing something for other people. Yes, and this is supposed to be a journey, according to Philip Noyce. He's on his way. There's the three miracles that are meant to happen. There's the love of a good woman. And one of the interesting things uh, about The Saint is the two endings, of mm. course, which, having lost the young girl in the orphanage who falls to her death, there was an alternative ending, which they shot and they showed to various audiences, where Elizabeth Shue apparently dies of a heart attack because she's got a dicky ticker. And then it turns out she's been assassinated by the Russians and then The Saint goes back, wreaks his revenge and uh, gives the money away. And then there's the one that's on the released version, which is she announces to the world and sets up a foundation for cold fusion to give the world limitless electricity. And the saint drives off and he hears an announcement on the car radio by a very... Very distinguished well, sounding actor. Playing a newsreader, none other than our Rog who explains that $3 billion... And I think maybe it's a nice little touch is that which benefits from it is UNICEF, which which Roger Moore, you know, heavily lauded. That's right. Uh, He was an ambassador, wasn't he? That's an announcement that basically that the saint has moved those funds from the villainous baddies' bank accounts and distributed them. All of that seemed rather neat. Nobody said, hey... Haven't his bank accounts been frozen? Mm. Anyway, he drives off, and this is when you actually start to hear the theme tune properly. There's been hints of it. And it's also interesting that he's acquired the little saint pin from... Oh, he has? Yeah. yeah. And so all those things are now in place, and he can go off and do his uh, suave good works. A very similar thing was done in Casino Royale, the James Bond reboot. Yeah, which I suppose the character reaches a point of maturity. That's right, and uh, I think that they did the same thing with the music. They were hinting at those things, and then you only really get to hear the theme when he's shot this guy in the leg and walks up to him and said, name's Bond, James Bond. That's when you sort of think, oh, hey, let's go with this. And that worked. I think Paramount were probably hoping that there would be another ongoing another series, which I would say was always going to be a long shot given that Val Kilmer's involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I don't think he likes going back to stuff. He certainly didn't carry on with Batman. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm. let me just point out who else might have been tapped up previously to Val Kilmer taking it on. Hugh Grant, we've mentioned. Kenneth Branagh. Okay, uh, yeah. Mel Gibson. Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. Christian Slater. George Clooney. Kevin Costner. Johnny Depp and Daniel Day-Lewis all refused the role, according to Wikipedia. And Val Kilmer was cast after declining to reprise the role of Batman in Joel Shoemaker's Batman and Robin. That encouraged me to look up a little of the production history of that movie that cannot be named. 
also based on a popular 60s television series, Me Lud. Well, I was going to ask Guy, and um, I, I obviously, I can, you can use your safe word, and I can stop this conversation at any time. With Saint fans, I'm just wondering in what kind of either awe or respect the big bucket 90s film may be regarded, because obviously we know from another big budget 90s film based on a popular 60s TV series is an anathema to fans of the original series. Yes, and as you know, my motto when we touch upon this was that, comparing this to The Saint, the 1997 film, which made money, let's Mm -hmm. not forget about it, was not a great addition to The Saint canon, whereas the other film was not only a crime against the Avengers... It was a crime against cinema. Here it comes. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I feel I'm playing with fire. I really do. Yes. Well, fortunately, we have uh, health and safety standing by with an extinguisher. Unlikely people who were asked to appear in the nameless movie. Hugh Grant, who Brian, okay, yeah. Brian Clemens actually suggested should be paired with Elizabeth Hurley okay, to, to yes, play Mrs. Yeah. Peel. That might have worked, actually. She might. I have suppose done. he finally did get his chance to, to appear in a 60s revamp um, because he plays Mr. Waverley in Guy Ritchie's dreadful Man From Uncle. Oh, right. Yes, um, I suppose that's true. And, of course, that was an unqualified success. I thought you meant Paddington, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but you might think that Arnold Schwarzenegger playing the saint is unlikely casting it's a really you know you've got a very perhaps an undefined role there where you could consider either hugh grant or arnold schwarzenegger to play the same character that's that's quite a a range of interpretation now apparently according to my unexpurgated complete avengers tome oh right yes yeah there were other people considered for the role of Steed, and they included Hugh Grant and Robbie Coltrane. Again, very, very broad appeal there. Yes, I'm not quite sure what the reasoning behind that. I mean, Robbie Coltrane (laughs) was appearing as a Russian villain in the Pierce Brosnan... Goldeneye, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Bond movies. I'm not quite sure that would fit in with... I'm hard pushed to think of anyone who could have carried it off apart from Patrick McNee, which is why Mel Gibson turned it down. <laughs> yeah. Did he did he just say, no, you just need Patrick McNee for this? Yeah. And of course, Patrick <laughs> McNee played an invisible character. Yes. Uh, and I was just reading through that. And I'm not entirely sure that there was a coherent storyline for that movie. And I'm not entirely sure there was a coherent storyline for The Saint. But The Saint is not the worst movie ever made. And there's a lot of competition for that. There is, you know, there's, you know, you've got Jonathan Hensley, who was, you know, during the 90s, was doing a lot of big buck slam bang action. You know, Wesley Strick, uh, who'd come off the back of uh, Cape Fear, amongst others. I know he he had a hand in the script uh, as well. That said, Philip Noyce, uh, very competent. If you check out his early uh, Australian films, uh, Newsfront is particularly good. Dead Calm is really interesting as well. Like you said, the same theme gets a nice airing by Orbital towards the end. I've still got the CD single. I think so. that's possibly the best thing about the movie. 
Mm. There's an awful lot of music. There's something by David Bowie on there, but it's all kind of played in the background. Says yeah, Graham Ravel does all the heavy lifting on the score. Uh, obviously, some some Russian influenced um, pieces in there, and we we also have that idea of again, from like a little bit of backstory, is that there are two dedicated London cops, Alan Armstrong and Charlotte Cornwell, who seem to have been building up a dossier on the mysterious Simon Templar. Yes, and actually, they don't even really know his name, but Alan Armstrong is playing Chief Inspector Claude Eustace Teal, and. That's where the humour is. And if you kind of think, well, where is Alan Armstrong? You need more of this. You need more wit. And surprisingly, there isn't enough wit in this for me. And the saint is doing fairly creepy things, like breaking into Elizabeth Shue's apartment and going through all her stuff. Then there are some fairly cheesy chat-up lines. There's that rather unconvincing... He gets drunk, um, or does he pretend to get drunk? I don't know, on very expensive red wine in a restaurant in Oxford. Uh, so, yeah, there, there, there are some some questionable things that he does, but maybe towards the end, uh, because we have this idea of that he is living out this life of penance, because as Elizabeth Shue points out, all his names that he uses for his alter egos are all the names of Catholic saints. Uh, except IMDB points out that one of them isn't actually a saint. He was beatified. But... Oh, so close. That's like hitting the post. <laughs> yes. That, that's kind of one of my issues, that um, a lack of clarity of plot being one and a lack of wit and humour and sophistication. And one point that Philip Noyce makes, they found the bar in Moscow where they raced rats. Um, Okay. And one of the things that they noticed was a lot of the waiting staff were students from Africa who were trying to make money. Philip Noyce implies that Val Kilmer thought it would be great if he was an African waiter. When I first visited the club, the waiters and waitresses were mainly drawn from the large number of black African students who had been studying in the former Soviet Union. And when I mentioned this to Val, he immediately hit on the idea of playing one of these African waiters, this being the easiest way to infiltrate the place. Makeup artist Paul England and wig designer Vera Mitchell came up with a great disguise for Val as the African. But when we looked at it, it just felt too easy. Val came to me and said, why don't I play him? Pointing to Rade Serbajaya. I said, do you think you can do it? He said, give me a chance. And as this decision had been made quite close to the day of shooting, the first time I actually saw Val in disguise was on the set. I'm wondering just how much of this movie was made up on the hoof. Thankfully, that's why this movie can still be shown. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, we have, we, we have that. Uh, um, where you think, oh, right, no, that'd be, that'd be a bit awkward. Yes, so I think that uh, the disguise box was, um, <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, our, our Rog does put on plenty of funny accents and the old moustache. I think the point that uh, somebody made was that the disguises are kind of much more basic in the saint books. Rod most of the time just puts on a pair of glasses and an American accent or occasionally a beard and a scar. Yes, as he did in um, in The Saint Sees It Through, mm. where he 
he has a fully rounded Scandinavian um, seafarer's uh, disguise. Which fools everyone. Yeah, I was convinced. There have obviously been dozens of iterations. I mean, we could talk about The Return of the Saint with Ian Ogilvy, mm-hmm. um, which didn't have the same legs as Roger's thing. I thought Ian Ogilvy looks very much like Rog. Very personable enough chap, and his autobiography is a brilliant read. It's a lovely read. Yeah, what does he say about The Return of the Saint? Uh, he was as surprised as anyone to be asked to do it. He'd, he'd done some feature films he'd done some very big feature films and all of a sudden when he was asked to do this he said it was it was kind of like being in a big fun environment to be able to do a bit of like episodic regular regular tv and he realized you know there were big boots to to fill but he was game and you know decided to have a go at it but maybe he wasn't given a long enough run at it maybe possibly um I think also there is that thing we've talked about, the move from the 60s into the 70s. It is to do with timing. Of course, the original Saint didn't get a network showing in the United States, and they had to make 39 to go into syndication to make them look good enough in order to eventually appear on American network TV. And so I'm not quite sure how many Return of the Saints were. Maybe it was only one season. It was just one season that was and you know that was one of the reasons he said you know maybe just didn't get a long enough run at it you know it's a bit like the persuaders where you would think because of the star power you know it may be able to bring in the um the big names the big bucks but it sometimes particularly like you said during the the 70s it would be what they were put up against on american networks yeah and even in britain uh, i think that appetites maybe had changed the idea of glamorous locations and suave heroes was probably slightly passe at the time and quite difficult Mm -hmm. to to bring back if you'd had a much clearer idea of who the saint was say it had been hugh grant who would have been Mm -hmm. playing it in a similar fashion to rog and there had been a more coherent story then maybe the saint could have done two or three it would have been sort of quite nice to do any star is probably going to be a bit wary of signing up to a franchise i mean the last comments i want to make about the 1997 movie are the avengers points oh right okay yeah are there some in there yeah stefan griff one point and one of Roger's original saints, which is the colour gadget lovers. He was also in the Lotus Eaters and the Aphrodite Inheritance. <gasps> big, oh, big Greek passport owner. Yep. Obviously, he was a pillar of British television. The much uncredited Guy Standeven. Four oh, points. All right, we've talked about him before, who has hundreds and hundreds of screen credit. That's right. Four points. But surprisingly, no original TV saints. Oh. I, I was really surprised at that. Tina Simmons, who has one point, which is a Tara King episode, and she's still working, and the last credit of 206 that I've seen was No Time to Die. Um, oh, right, OK, there you go. Um, most of these are credits. So, Tina Simmons, we salute you. And, of course, Robert S. Baker was named as executive producer because I think he still held some of the rights to The Saint. Could you 
pull off another saint? I'm not sure, really. Could you do a like I said, Simone one? Templar. That's what they need to do, Simone Templar. There was the series of saint films as well with Simon Dutton, TV movies, you know, where he, again, just kind of didn't catch on, didn't catch fire. That was the 80s, wasn't that? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So there have been plenty of attempts, and I think ending this showcase edition of Rose Tinted Black and White Television, the jury comes back in and says, there is only one Simon Templar, and that is yes. our Rog. And we go, yes. Roger Moore currently being seen in the black and white versions of The Saint, now into series three on Talking Pictures Television. We'll say that is definitive for all time. So thank you very much for chewing over those particular things, Dave, and for suggesting it in the first place. This thank has you. been the showcase version of Rose Tinted Black and White Television. I'm Guy Morgan, and the driving force behind all this nostalgia and critical acuity is my co-host David Newell and if you want to hear about three episodes of series three tune in to our review show which will be coming up shortly thank you very much thank you